Hi, my name is Andrea Jansen, and I am on a mission to help people be ambitious at work every single day. That means you're fulfilled, you're productive, and you're contributing to your company. I'm a certified executive coach that has an MBA, a diversity consultant, a Forbes contributor, a business leader, a wife, and a mother of three. This podcast is about tackling hard topics like the gender gap in the workplace. It's about asking the questions that everybody's thinking about, but doesn't want to say out loud. Each episode is like the sweet spot between motivation and tactical strategies to get you ahead. We get out of our comfort zones and we take action. This is where we learn, grow, and create opportunities. Welcome to the Ambition Theory Podcast. Failure is a normal part on the road to success. Some of the best ideas or improvements are the result of a previous failure. But failure is scary and we often avoid talking about it. This avoidance can cause you and your organization to avoid taking risks and miss out on opportunities. This is a live podcast where Michael Hartley walks us through a concept called the capacity to fail safely. He coined this term during a keynote speech he gave in the Ambition Theory community in September of 2020. After his talk, people couldn't stop asking themselves, do my employees have the capacity to fail safely? Do I have the capacity to fail safely? If I do fail, is it going to end in catastrophe? We invited Michael back to teach us how to implement systems that can take a brittle organization and transform it into a resilient one so that you can build in the capacity to fail safely in your personal and professional life. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to tell you about the Ambition Theory community, which is our brand new monthly membership program that supports leaders all over the world to advance their leadership capacity. It includes professional coaching and access to thought leaders like Michael Hartley, who you're going to hear in this episode. The best part is that you'll be surrounded by people who are trying to achieve the same level of success that you are, because you can't solve your company's toughest problems on your own. To join the community, go to ambitiontheory.ca. Okay, hello, Michael. Thank you so much for coming on the Ambition Theory podcast, a live episode with our Ambition Theory community. Can you introduce yourself and tell everybody what you do? Uh, first and foremost, thank you very much for, for having me uh, and uh, welcome everyone. Happy New Year, I suppose. <clears throat> uh, my name is Michael Hartley. I'm the founder and CEO of Mindtel. We are a risk and performance data company based in Toronto. Uh, we help organizations better manage risk through measurement of control performance and risk exposure. Uh, we're a technology company, as you might uh, suspect. And we've been in business for about the past uh, two to three years. Uh, And prior to that, uh, I had worked in mining as a risk manager for Barrick Gold. uh, And I had uh, worked for Shell in a number of roles in in Europe, in the Netherlands, uh, the UK, and finished up my oil and gas career in Kazakhstan about 10 years ago. Okay, Michael, we are super excited to have you here. And this is your second time in the Ambition Theory community. And I have to tell you, you are a fan favorite. After you came and spoke with us in September, people were taking this concept that you taught us about introducing the capacity to fail safely into your business. And they were going away and implementing it and saying, I need more. It's almost like someone said, I'm going to turn this into a t-shirt. Like, do I have the capacity to fail safely? Like literally like that's how much value you gave to our community. So we are so excited to have you back and dive into this topic a little bit deeper. 
But before we go there, I want you to take us back to the time before you started MindTel and tell me what was going on for you. Well, as I mentioned, I spent my the, the first 10 years of my career in oil and gas uh, with a super major working in different parts of the world on projects that were going to be implemented in different parts of the world as well. And my, my last role, I was responsible for all the health, safety, environmental risks uh, on the offshore component of what was the largest project in the world at the time. Um, and we were based in the, the North Caspian Sea. So the Caspian Sea is uh, a, a body of water in, that straddles uh, Central Asia uh, and, uh, and Russia as well. So I guess it, it, it straddles Europe and Asia. Um, and so we were in the, in the far north of the, uh, of the Caspian Sea based in, in Kazakhstan, as I had mentioned. And we had 6,200 people working offshore, uh, 40 different nationalities, 20 different languages. Obviously, communication is a big challenge, but effectively, we were creating a small town uh, in the north of the Caspian Sea. And one morning, we got news that uh, Deepwater Horizon... A, an oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico uh, had exploded, uh, killed 11 people. Uh, it was the biggest US, uh, biggest environmental disaster, pardon me, in the United States. And it cost BP upwards of $50 billion. Uh, and so understandably, you know, a few people were asking questions and our installation manager pulls me into his office and says, could this happen to us? Now, granted, we were in different stages of, of, of production. We were getting into the commissioning um, on the commissioning side of things. But you know, with the data that we had, I couldn't definitively say no. And that's where I felt kind of that fundamental moment, that seminal moment of discomfort where everything I had been working towards, I started to call into question. The fact I was flat out wrong in, in, in a lot of the stuff that I had been thinking about. And the more I explored that event in the Gulf of Mexico, the more I realized, well, we need to do something different about how we measure risk and performance. So that was really the day that, that Mindtel was conceived. So tell me about what was going on for you at the job. Because it sounds like you had this internal moment where you're like, this happened here. We're doing similar work and you yeah. weren't confident, what was like, it sounds like that was internally, you were exploring, you were getting curious, you were asking lots of questions. What was happening to you professionally, like in your role in the company at that moment? Well, of course we were measuring our performance um, and we were measuring our performance very similar to how BP was measuring its performance uh, at the time. And that was the standard across the industry. And it should be noted that, uh, BP had had a couple of uh, major events in the previous decade. Uh, 2005, it was Texas City. Uh, 2000 was Prudhomme Bay in Alaska. So major, major catastrophic events. And then Deepwater Horizon came along as well. So the CEO at the time, Tony Hayward, um, who took over um, after the fallout of Texas City. So he took over around 2007, 2008. And he came in and said, I'm going to have a laser focus on safety. Uh, and what that meant was uh, results, so in number of injuries, right? And the industry was became very, very good at managing down those 
you know, th those injuries. And, and the day that Deepwater Horizon exploded, uh, two executives from Transocean who operated the rig, two executives from BP who, uh, who owned the rig, flew offshore with the sole purpose to give the management and crew of Deepwater Horizon a safety award. So the irony that they were being feted on the very day that they exploded was not lost on me. And we were measuring the same things and we were patting ourselves on the back in the same way. And I thought, hold on, we need to think differently about how we measure and communicate risk and performance data, not just within our company, but also uh, externally as well. And, and this is where that, that epiphany moment where I said, okay, well, we need to be able to measure things that help us make operational decisions, that performance piece, rather than solely communicating out results with no indicators as to how safe, repeatable, or sustainable uh, those results could be in the future. Okay, so you had this moment, and what did, like, I, I can't imagine what that was like, right? Because you're there, right? You have 40, you said, how many people were on your rig that you were working on? 6,200. Like 6,200 people, and you're like, okay, we could all be at risk, right? Was that kind of the moment at that yeah, now, moment, did you realize that? Yeah, now just to um, put the, the situation in context, we, we were at a different stage uh, of our production. Um, okay. So we were going into commissioning. Uh, so we, we didn't necessarily have um, you know, live, um, live lines at, the, at, at that time. Uh, and then in operations, you wouldn't have 6,200 people working there, but that's just an aside. But, but for, for me, this was another... A challenger disaster, Columbia, of NASA. You know, this was another multiple uh, major event within the same organization, where that organization failed to learn, and not through uh, lack of resources. Uh, anybody who reads the Texas City um, uh, investigation will see that there was huge resources put into that. Right? And and this is where a, a term that I've I knew about and had done some work on because really hammered home is this notion of, of normalization of deviance, right? So how do we detect all the little things that failed in the run-up to that event? Uh, and, and then what can we do to intervene on those? And is and, that what made you start Mindtel to really have a tool to answer those questions? Yeah, absolutely. Because I wanted to know, you know, from a step back, stepping back from a risk perspective, and it doesn't matter what industry you're in. It could be in retail, uh, construction, uh, energy, food production. What are the big things that I'm concerned about? What are my big risks? What are the controls that I put in place? And then how well are those controls working? And I don't want to be in a position where I'm assuming that the controls are working because nothing bad has happened, right? And this is the situation that uh, natural resources got, has itself into uh, even today, where the absence of failure is seen as a metric of success, right? And, and I need to spin that on its head that you can execute successful work but there, it could still be uh, littered with failures. Similarly, you could fail, but 
you would have the, the vast majority of the work that was executed could be successful. So that, that notion between performance and results, where results are the figurative uh, tip of the iceberg, but understanding that underlying performance is so very important. Again, not just in natural resource, but any complex industry uh, of which many of your, your, your community uh, work in. And how did you know you were the person to take this on? Hmm. I hadn't met anybody else who was going to do it. So I figured I might as well do it myself. Uh, that's, yeah. And, and, and I think I had a nice kind of balance between oil and gas and mining. Uh, I was a, a, an outsider into both of those. I'm not a petroleum engineer. I'm not a mining engineer. So I can kind of ask questions that would not normally get asked by uh, by people who have kind of studied their whole lives within either of those industries. Uh, and I, I take a very human centric approach to risk management. Uh, and you know, the, the problem that we need to solve is that we need to get reliable and actual information into the hands of decision makers. It's not about generating a report. Uh, it, it's, it's not about simply collecting data for the sake of collecting data. Uh, it's about being able to measure the right things, analyze those data against known expectations and, and standards, and then be able to communicate that information to the right people so they can go and make decisions. And then there's the, the, the notion of, okay, well, how, how good are those decisions that we're making? But we can talk about that uh, in, in a moment, but that's the very essence of, 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 of risk management is... Uh, again, solving that problem of getting reliable and actual information into the hands of decision makers, not just simply going through a data collection, a data capture exercise. I love this about you, Michael, because it's really focused on taking action and making decisions. And that is how businesses move forward. So really empowering the people because you are a data person, but this is why we love you in our community is that you make it human and you make it actionable and you make it easy for people to understand like what is happening and so that we can take action, move the business forward and make those really, really good decisions. So I have one question, one more question before we dive into kind of the teaching portion of this episode. Um, you're all about building in that capacity to fail safely um, and helping big companies do that. But I'm really curious about Mindtel. What kind of failures have you faced as you've been growing this company? Well, you did mention that the podcast is only an hour long. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's less than an hour. Yeah. Okay. So I'll I'll, I'll have to pick one. Um, yeah. I mean, I, any tech company, startup company, is going to be, frankly, riddled with failures. Uh, it's what you do with the successes and how you grasp onto those, which I think differentiates uh, successful companies from uh, from failed companies. And we are by no means a successful company yet. Um, but I think the, the biggest thing that I've learned out of this is, you know, as, as we are all stewards of change uh, within our organization, we have to think about what implementing a change actually means, right? And, and so for me, implementation was just a word that I would use to say, okay, yeah, we've got to flick the switch on this change. Right? But 
I had to take a step back after you know a number of early early failures to say, well, implementation actually has three components to it. There's a design component, yeah. There's a deployment, uh, and then there's an adoption, and each of those are very human centric, because that organization who's who's adopting this, who's making, who's implementing this change. It needs to be able to, to author that content of what, where we are, where we need to go. They need to be able to st uh, clearly state that. Uh, and then in the, in the deployment, you know, they, they need to be able to answer that question. Okay, well, what's different? Why is this important? You know, what's in it for you, the individuals within their organization? And then that, that adoption piece, and this is maybe where more, more of the human factors piece comes in, is how can we strip away the friction that enables people to easily adopt that change uh, without putting those uh, barriers that we've all seen um, in, in, over the course of our career? But that's been the big, big learning for me thus far, is that we have to keep that focus on those three phases of implementation. Mm-hmm. And then is it that you kind of forgot that human side of things? Is that like, hey, we got this amazing tool. We're all excited about it. The company's implementing it. And then they kind of fail to follow up with the human side of it and really empower the employees to use it. Yeah. And, and, and to be fair, you've got to do these things sequentially. Uh, you can't adopt something that you haven't designed. Uh, you can't deploy something that you haven't designed. Right. Uh, and, and and so for, for us, it was... Uh, really trying to uh, make our our client um, build their skills and, and capabilities to be uh, advocates for this within their organizations. And, and that's tough. It takes time uh, and you've got to find the right people to, you've got to find the right people to do that. But if we can scale that advocacy within our, our client organizations, and we, we do that by building something that's really easy to use and brings value because if it doesn't do if it's not either of those two things then trying to build advocates for it is really really tough so what has this failure led you to so you kind of had this, a challenge with that implementation with the adoption and you kind of have implemented some things to help with that to help with your clients get the champions what has that led to for mindtel yeah i think this is the the, the big thing for us is being able to um drive decisions, uh, or sorry, help organizations drive decisions and then be able to see how, you know, what effect those decisions had on control performance and risk exposure. So really giving them the, the kind of the end-to-end -end, uh, experience, which we didn't necessarily appreciate early on. But now, if we've got a failing control, an alert comes up. Okay, well, we need to know who's acknowledged that alert, who's acted on it, uh, and then what action has has been taken, and then how can we assess whether that has been effective or not, whether that intervention has been effective or not. That's really, really important to be able to do that at scale, because if we're just if we're just capturing data, analyzing, communicating, but there's no there's no fault, there's no loop back, uh, then that's where these things become quite staid, and and frankly, that's where as a as a technology you're not necessarily instrumental into in the in the day-to-day -day decisions um, that are that organizations make you know across sectors 
Okay, so you said one of my favorite words, Michael, it was action. It's right, there's something wrong, there's an alert, they take action. And that takes that, that action is where that buy-in, where that implementation comes in. So I love that. You always need to take action. You always need to do something about what you learn. And that's what I love about Mindtel and the work that you do. But now I wanna move to like the next phase of this interview. And I want you to talk to us about what failure looks like in organizations, big and small. Yeah, and again, for many of you in, in construction, uh, you will think immediately, oh, we've gone over budget, we've gone over time, right? And those are, those are deemed as failures. Uh, and they would be, yeah, absolutely. Um, and if we say, okay, well, those are the results, what's the underlying performance of the organization that led to that? So how can we start to draw some kind of causal relationship between the way we execute work and what we achieve? And, and this is where we start to define what failure looks like uh, in terms of performance. And, and again, so we've got to keep our focus on what, you know, what are the big things that we have to worry about? What are the controls that we put in place and how effective those controls are? And, and that is really, scalable up and down and can be applied across various scopes. It's not just for a mega project. It's not just for a you know, major complex operation. This could be you know, within a team. Uh, this could be within a department. Uh, this could be within a function uh, of, of, of any organization. Um, and so really driving our focus on, on the performance as opposed to just being solely uh, solely fixated on the results, because again, we want to be able to know how repeatable and, uh, and sustainable those results actually are. What does measuring performance look like? Can you break it down? Yeah, so I think you've got to, again, go back to those controls. So what are the things that we're doing and how well are we doing them? Yeah, and, and we've got to keep that focus on those things that are important. One of the things I see a lot of the, the traps a lot of organizations fall into is, well, we can measure something, so therefore it's really important, right? And you, you measure what's easy and you, you put a dump an undue weight of importance upon that metric. And that's where you start to, you to, to, to lose the plot a little bit. So for, for me, the basic questions I would ask is, okay, what are, what are my controls? Uh, and for those individual controls, what's the objective of that control? And how can I go and test that if that, if that objective is being met? And, and that would be a way I would, well, we uh, measure, uh, help measure performance, which then, you know, we, we, we translate that and extrapolate that into, well, what kind of additional uh, expo risk exposure are we facing? And is that risk exposure acceptable or not? Because you're, you're never gonna eliminate risk. That's if anyone if anyone says that hey we can eliminate all your risk or de-risk, it's a snake oil salesman, yeah. And, and what you want to be able to achieve is that we are free from exposure to unacceptable risk because if if, if yeah, going back to what I said earlier, if you're not exposed to risk, that means you're not operating, right? You, you're not doing anything. All right, so really understanding is this risk that we're exposed to, is it acceptable or not? How and do we then, know that, Michael? How do you know whether a risk is acceptable or not? 
Well, and, and again, because you've, you've done your assessments, you've got your uh, controls identified, and you know that those controls are working. What right? is an example of a control? Well, uh, I mean, the, the technical definition is a, a system or it's a, a, an object or an act. So, so let's take, um, you know, for, for the, the construction folks, um, you know, we have a number of, um, of, of cost controls. Yeah, you have a number of scheduling controls, right? And, uh, you know, in oil and gas and, and mining, you know, for, for, I'll go back to mining. Uh, if we're managing a, a tailings dam facility, you know, we want to look at uh, ground movement. So being able to measure ground movement is a way that we control the, um, the efficacy of these, uh, of these tailings dams. So there are a whole slew of, uh, of controls and you, you're probably doing them a, a lot already, just maybe not labeling them as a, as a control, but uh, if things management teams put in place to mitigate uh, unwanted risk. Okay, and so I wanna go back to this, how do we know as like one employee or even as like in a small business, how would you know whether a risk is acceptable or not? Yeah, and, and you need to make that information uh, available, right? Uh, and, and this helps to, you know, to bring out that you know, for a lot of operators in complex systems, uh, a term called you know, situational awareness, right? So I'm aware of how my controls are working. I'm aware of where those gaps are, where those failures are. And I can see that my people are taking the right actions and those actions uh, are, are effective. Um, and so I would want to see uh, that the, the controls are in place, the controls are working and any gaps that uh, are, exist within those controls I'm aware of, so I can adapt to that, uh, you know, to that environment. Now, there may be a situation where you say, okay, this control, um, if it's not functioning uh, properly, then we, we, we can't do the work, but by and large, you wanna see that the, the controls are there, uh, they're working and you know where the gaps are. And that should give you the sense that the, the, the risk that you're exposed to is indeed acceptable. So I want you to explain how this kind of plays out when you do end up with a really big failure, like a big detrimental failure. Like how do these controls fail? Because you talked about before um, that big explosion in that the executives were on their way to just like celebrate the safety. So I would just assume all the controls, no accident, like nothing is wrong, but how did they miss everything that led to that failure? And again, I think this is a classic example of we measure something that's easy, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily important or that it's indicative of other risks. Yeah. Uh, so the risk of a, uh, of, a, of a loss containment is not the same as a slip, trip and fall. And this is the two contrasting um, examples in the, in the Deepwater Horizon case. Okay, so we're just we're measuring stuff that's easy, like nobody's fallen in the past month, so we're good, we're good to go. Safety award, whereas reality, they should have been measuring something else. That, that's right. Again, what are our big risks? What are our controls? How well are those controls actually working? Uh, and and that's not necessarily being systematically uh, accomplished by by all organizations in um, across the, the resource sector, and frankly, across a lot of complex systems as well. 
And so it's, a, it's almost like you want to be tracking failure and that's actually a positive thing. So I want, can you explain to me like the reframe in looking at failure actually as a positive thing and you want to hear more about failure? Yeah, and, and I think this is where, and again, after the the Challenger disaster in 1986, a, um, a sociologist uh, named Diane Vaughn coined this term normalization of deviance, right? And what was evident after the event was that there had been cues that these O-rings had been failing in different conditions. Uh, there were other things that um, other uh, engineer, technical or organizational failings that, that had occurred in the run-up not just to the failed uh, Challenger mission, but also to successful missions as well, right? And and what where how she explained it is or explains this normalization deviance is that organizations think that because nothing bad has happened, therefore, you know, we were we were perfect in the run up to that, right? Or any fault failure is now acceptable. So she talks about problems within organizations that at first are unexpected, but if you don't deal with them and you continue to do what you're doing, those prob same problems become expected. Uh, and if you still don't deal with them, then they become accepted, right? So this is just a norm, now this is this normal, this is now normal way of operating, hence the normalization of deviance within an organization. And I just want to make clear that these deviations, these are, are things that are not malicious. These are things that are not intended, um, nor are these you know, gross violations or, or major ethical breaches. But these are things that don't go according to plan uh, within, within the execution of work. Um, and, and so organizations need to really be able to, to go back to the the title of this, that capacity to fail safely, organizations really have to think about, well, how do we listen for and detect these failures in the work that we're doing, regardless of whether that package of work was deemed a failure or a success based on the results? So how do you go about implementing that really? Because I think our culture has been so focused on like success, success, let's celebrate success. How do you shift that from let's actually look at those failures, bring them up to the table, talk about it, shine the light on it without kind of going against that human side that makes it really difficult to acknowledge failure? Yeah, and, and, and a lot of leaders and organizations will, will say that they want to hear this, right? Uh, and and they'll lament the fact that oh my organization has a problem of, of, of uh, communicating bad news, right? We don't communicate bad news well enough. Well, I would flip that on its head. Actually, I would say that most organizations aren't great at receiving bad news. And so, if you communicate bad news up, up the organizational chain and you get your head taken off, well, guess what? There's no more bad news. Because it's not, it's not worth it for me to to, to expose myself in, uh, that way again, right? So, being able to to listen for these, um, you know, for these deviations, you need to be able to set some standards. You need to be able to set some expectations and requirements 
on those things that are most important. Yeah. And so if, if organizations can, can listen, but not just say, hey, if you see something, say something, because again, that's just a, a very throwaway passive statement. Uh, but the, the listening has to be systematic. It's got to be focused on those things of value, not things that are easy. Uh, it's got to be uh, collective. And I would say it's got to be passive. You know, we've got to you know, remove the barriers to people actually bringing this news up to their boss or their boss's boss uh, as and when we need it. Right? And this is around two things. A, where are we experiencing hazards that we didn't necessarily expect? But also, what are some of the changes that I've got that I've been making in my own work in order to navigate this, this, you know, the, 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 this unexpected environment in which I'm working in, in order to get the job done? Because so, it's almost like you reward that, right? Like, okay, there's a problem. And, yeah. oh, you know, I like I can modify my own job so that I don't actually have to stop any work today. I don't have to go waste time talking to my boss. Oh, I'm actually a good worker. So you think you're doing the right thing when in reality, you're actually just like letting the system work with failure. And then that, if that happens like across with multiple employees and it's like this built up deviant and then that's when the big bad failure happens. That's right. It, it, it's collective. It's additive, yeah. uh, and and that's when you get these uh, these, these catastrophic events. So, I mean, one of the things that again a lot of companies talk about is is culture. I mean, it's how many times do we hear this? Oh, the, the culture is right. You know, we've got a good culture here. But for me, culture should be measured on three things. Right? Are my people engaged in the right things? Or on in those important areas? Are they taking the right actions and are those actions effective? Because then if I've got those as kind of my leading indicators on my, on my culture, then I'm pretty confident that we're, we're, we're receiving this, this information and this bad news. Uh, we're, we're, we're intervening, right? We're able to address those. We're learning and improving, not just, the process of the work that we that we undertake, but also the environment in which it's being undertaken. But then lastly, we need to be able to communicate that out, right? Because organizations, particularly in the resource sector, are in a major trust deficit with, you know, a lot of a, a, a lot of stakeholders, um, you know, local communities, uh, uh, in, investors, uh, investors who are becoming much more, um, I'm going to throw another term at you here, uh, ESG, environmental social governance, they're becoming much more ESG savvy uh, in their uh, in their investment decisions. Uh, and, and, and therefore, in order to maintain and build that trust, we need to be able to inform the stakeholders that, hey, we understand what our big risks are the things that we're doing, they're working. And wherever we have a gap, we can go and intervene and improve. And we can tell you about that. Again, it takes us back to humanizing risk management as opposed to making it a very kind of technocratic uh, function within an organization. Michael, thank you so much for this interview. We like to end every podcast interview with actions that people can take within 24 hours after learning something new. So we can break it down to something very simple that people can do to get started right away. So what, what is it? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's quite simple actually. Uh, first, uh, 
what's pick one thing that keeps you up at night. Second, pick the thing that helps you sleep at night. Right. And then ask yourself four basic questions on that. Uh, do we have the design right? Yeah. Do we have the resources to be able to, to deliver this? Do I have all the information I need to make the decisions? And uh, are we are we complying with this? I think those four basic questions are really transferable across uh, really testing any control for any risk. Okay, I love that. Thank you so much, Michael, for coming on the podcast. And if people want to learn about you and Mindtel, how do they find you? Uh, my profile is publicly available on LinkedIn. Uh, and they can go to our website, uh, mindtel.ca, M-I-N-E-T-E-L-L.ca. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast again, Michael. Thank you for having me. Hi there. Before you go, I was wondering if I could ask you a huge favor. Can you click on iTunes and give the podcast a five-star review and also a comment? This would mean the world to me. It also helps us to spread the word about the podcast and attract higher profile guests. We want to be able to deliver thought leadership around diversity inclusion every single week and having more reviews on iTunes will help us to do that and help us to keep the show going for free for you. So please head to iTunes right now, give us a five-star review and leave us a comment. Thanks so much. 